You are listening to the Spiked podcast. My name is Ella Whelan. I'm the assistant editor at Spiked. Thank you for tuning in. Today we have a great lineup. We've got Bruno Waterfield on the Brexit negotiations, which were announced this morning. Sean Collins, our US correspondent, picks the latest stage in the panic about Russia and the US. And I speak to Naomi first about the Stop Funding Hate campaign and why it is threatening press freedom. A breakthrough, a sigh of relief. That was how this morning's announcement from the negotiation table with EU leaders and Prime Minister Theresa May was described by many. Here at Spiked, we were rather less encouraged. In fact, the agreements on the withdrawal bill sound a lot more like cowardice, compromise and failure than any kind of successful moving forward. One BBC economics editor asked, so did soft Brexit just win? And I think that probably tells you quite a lot. So what happened? May has agreed that the European Court of Justice will remain supreme over adjudicating EU citizens' rights for at least another eight years, with UK courts basically having to toe the line on those decisions. And with regards to Ireland, which has dominated the papers for the last week, a decision was reached which stated that if the UK fails to agree a trade deal, it will remain in full regulatory alignment with the rules of the Single Market and Customs Union, which effectively means, as Tom Slater, our deputy editor, put it on Spike today, that we check out but never leave. I mean, is this it? Is this the fate of Brexit, to be watered down and compromised to the point of pointlessness? Well, to discuss this morning's announcements, I called Bruno Waterfield. He's the Brussels correspondent for The Times, and you may well recognise him from our Brexit video, Brexit and the Battle for Democracy. Here's what he had to say. So, Bruno, the big news out this morning is that there has been a breakthrough in the Brexit negotiations, that finally something has happened that isn't kind of gossiping and bickering, that there has been an agreement in relation to the withdrawal bill between Theresa May, the Prime Minister, and the EU leaders. But on the other hand, actually, when you dig a little bit deeper, it seems that May might be giving the EU what it wants. I mean, are we witnessing a surrender here? Look, this is, at this stage, it's, it's about the withdrawal agreement. So it's the agreement or the bare bones of a, a withdrawal agreement. So on the whole, a lot of it is is what you would do leaving an organisation that you want to be on friendly terms with. If you want to be on friendly terms, you're going to have to have a separation. So m- most of it, well, the only bit that is actually straightforward and rational and logical is the bit about the stuff about the money, which is pretty much a draw. It's pretty much what's expected. Um, There are very big concessions made on the role of the European Court of Justice in terms of residency rights of European nationals and Britain, which we can come back to, but that's going to be very poisonous um, over the next decade because it essentially means there's a dual legal order uh, in Britain. It means a French banker uh, living in Kensington has recourse to a completely different legal system um, and a completely different set of rights than, say, a British Asian, a citizen of the United Kingdom, I think that's going to be very, very poisonous. I think that's that is a major concession and an unnecessary one. And all the, despite all the furore and hyperbole about Ireland, all the agreement on Ireland is complete fudge. It's basically a decision to kick it um, into the talks um, next year. So what the the real significance of this withdrawal agreement is that Britain's made a big concession on the ECJ, which will be poisonous and was probably unnecessary, um, and that politically this government has not decided what they call the end state of Brexit being. So what is what is Brexit going to mean? What is the relationship going to be with the EU? What is Britain's future going to be? That has not been decided. 18 months after the referendum, this political class is unable to decide 
uh, what Brexit will mean. And as we've seen, a, a very weakened, degenerated uh, Conservative Party, really even unable to do with a bunch of loonies uh, like the, the DUP. So they're in really big trouble. 18 months after the referendum, we still don't know where we're going. Well, I mean, that's exactly right. You've kind of got this strange situation where a Tory government, which is often referred to as the, the hard Brexiteers, is in fact seems very willing to compromise. I mean, their slogan, Brexit means Brexit, that kind of, that slogan that May got teased about for being ridiculous uh, during the general election here in the UK. I mean, I actually thought that was a very good slogan, but was that just meaningless? Was that just spin and PR? The cabinet have yet to have a proper discussion and a decision on what the end state of Brexit will mean. That indecision about where to go comes from the fact that the majority of the political class doesn't want to leave the EU. Majority of the Conservative Party does not want to leave the um, EU, and by pushing it further and further and further into the future to take uh, that decision into next year. They are trying to lay the groundwork for undermining uh, that decision. And next year, we'll see a very, very big push from big business, from the oligarchy, I'm sure, who will engineer some economic events or um, some economic consequences to try and alter that Brexit decision, to try and make Britain effectively remain in the European Union. So that battle is still to be had. This withdrawal agreement is merely a delay of the decision, the real decision over Brexit. Um, into next year and the battle is still on there is still a huge campaign by most of the political class and certainly the business oligarchy to undermine subvert and even overthrow brexit i mean i was watching it this morning and when tusk said breaking up is hard to do i mean he must be listening to neil sadaka but he's he kind of threatened and said breaking up is hard and this is going to be very difficult and warned that the worst is yet to come and I mean, is, is Brussels trying to punish Britain? Is this a kind of neo-colonial arrangement, the old power making huge demands on the nation that wants more independence? It seemed very much like this was really quite sinister. Well, I don't think there's anything particularly sinister to what he said. It's his idea of being colloquial and even humorous. The, the EU has a sort of a, a, an imperial machine quality um, to it. it. It doesn't really do, I mean, as we saw with the Greek crisis, it doesn't really do negotiation anymore. It just tends to lay down the law and and expect people to uh, sign up to it. And that will be a character next year, although the EU itself will be divided over the future of of trade relationships as well. There is also within the British political class and certainly within the EU, this desire for Brexit to be what they call a pedagogic uh, experience uh, for voters, both in Europe and Britain, i.e., something that educates people, educates people by teaching them a lesson, a salutary lesson, a morality tale about how bad leaving um, the EU. So there is a desire primarily within the British political class to punish uh, to punish voters. And I, I, I think that the real danger is that desire in the British political class, alongside those in the EU who want to turn Brexit into a pedagogic experience uh, of the perils and the terrors uh, of when you defy uh, the political order when you seek to reform the political order. Well, finding them, Bruno, I'm a bit nervous about asking this question, actually, because I kind of don't want to hear the answer. It's so depressing. But with all this kind of compromising, this backtracking, this fudging in relation to all the different aspects of the Brexit negotiations, are we in danger of losing the Brexit spirit, losing that thing that so excited Spikes and its readers and listeners that this was a demand for democracy? Do we need to revive that spirit of Brexit? Well, I think, I mean, look, the last 18 months has been 
uh, about trying to overturn that. I think that, that, that it's proving very indigestible in the sense that it's very difficult to digest it and just absorb it into um, the status quo. But that battle is still going on. That battle um, is still to be had. And as, as I said, next year is going to be the critical uh, moment. So two years after the referendum, that battle is effectively uh, still on and it can still be won and it can still be lost. That was Bruno Waterfield on the Brexit talks. Now for our next guest. Michael Flynn, the former National Security Advisor to US President Donald Trump, has pleaded guilty in interviews with the FBI to lying about conversations he had held with the then Russian ambassador during the Trump inauguration. Flynn is now reportedly cooperating with the FBI, and he made his plea to special counsel Robert Mueller's team, who are investigating the Russian collusion allegations. Finn's plea has spurred on cries of joy from many Democrats. Finally, we've got him. Trump is a goner, they cheered. But is this true? What are the consequences of this relatively small player like Flynn coming forward? And is all this tainted by the fact that much of the Russia panic is coloured by the desperation among the anti-Trump crowd to find a reason why Hillary lost? Well, to hash this out, I got Spike's US correspondent, Sean Collins, on the phone. Well, first of all, Sean, let's start off with looking at what is going on, because, I mean, reading some of the US news, you would think that Trump was about to be impeached. There's kind of, it seems to be like people predicting that the government's about to collapse. I mean, what is going on with this plea from Michael Flynn? Explain it to us. Yes, it, it has created something of a tizzy here. What happened was a week ago, Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor, pled guilty to lying to the FBI about specifically his discussions with the Russian ambassador in the presidential transition period, which was in December of 2016. After the election in November, Trump was elected, but Trump hadn't, wasn't officially in office until January, so it took place in that period. Along with that guilty plea was uh, an indication that Flynn would now be cooperating with the investigation by the special counsel, Robert Mueller, uh, into alleged collusion between the Trump campaign and, and Russia. And that's what's really um, set things off. And is this the big news that all the papers are making out to be? I mean, how detrimental is this uh, plea by Flynn? Does it spell doom for the Trump White House? Not in and of itself from the announcement of Flynn's guilty plea and his uh, arrangement to cooperate. You're right. There's a lot of overexcited people you see in the press and in media. Generally, you see comments like this is shocking, earth shattering, things like this. It's really, in, again, in and of itself, it's just like a, one of a number of kind of false dawns of um, this is going to mean Trump's downfall. In and of itself, the announcement doesn't really mean that. And in fact, if you think about it, the plea, it's the guilty plea, doesn't really pertain to the real issue that was behind Mueller's appointment as special counsel, which is the collusion between the Trump campaign during the election and uh, Russia. And that, you know, not only did Russia allegedly interfere in the election, but the Trump campaign had something to do with that. That's really what they're going for, because they think that'll ultimately bring down Donald Trump, maybe impeach him. But, you know, the plea was, was not 
actually to do with anything that happened during the election campaign. It happened uh, in the transition period, you know, after the election, but before inauguration. But of course, we really, ultimately, we don't know. I mean, uh, we, we don't know what Flynn knows and will tell Mueller. Really, it, it's not very wise to get, get all excited about, about this uh, plea itself. And me and you have talked about this before on the Spiked podcast about why Democrats still salivate at the idea that Trump could be taken down by a scandal like this. You know, they kind of impeach impeaches on the tip of their tongues all the time, it seems. I mean, why do they continue to still push this Russia theory when really actually time and again it's kind of disproved and it really is now feeling a bit tired and old and perhaps desperate? It is an ongoing attempt to try to claim that in some way, Trump and his administration are illegitimate. I mean, that's really the big picture here is that there's really an attempt by, primarily by the Democrats to, to sort of say, Trump is illegitimate and really should be impeached. And it really is in some ways, you know, the longest sour grapes, Spike editor Brendan O'Neill calls the longest hissy fit in history. Uh, of the Hillary Clinton campaign to say, you know, we were robbed and it really was down to Russia and the Trump campaign doing um, dodgy things. And and you can see this in, in the reaction to Flynn, but also in reaction to a number of other flare-ups over this past year where they get excited about this could be, you know, this proves uh, that, uh, that Trump colluded with the, with the Russians. Um, but, you know, the thing is, is that there is a way in which even the discussion indicates that it's not really all that credible. And there's almost a recognition of that, I think, as well by Trump's uh, opponents. And what I mean by that is that, first of all, you know, the reason why Flynn, in a way, became big news, because as you said, it was starting to get a bit old. And so this is kind of like a... a had this sense of, oh, yeah, there's this issue still going on. Uh, look at what happened to Flynn. Maybe there is still some life in this. But also, I think you can see it in the, in the arguments that are being used. The critics keep moving the goalposts, right? So it was supposed to be about collusion with Russia. But now, now they started to talk about the fact that, that in some way it might be illegal for Flynn and others to have spoken to the Russians during the transition period. And then you also have a whole discussion about, well, really the issue is not so much collusion. It's more about obstruction of justice. The fact that Trump fired the FBI director, James Comey, even though it's the case that, you know, that did not stop the investigation at all. Um, There's a new FBI director, the, the special counsel, Robert Mueller was appointed. There's congressional investigations. There's a lot going on. You know, the fact that they keep changing the the terms, to me, seems an indication that they, in some way, recognize the collusion argument doesn't have a lot of uh, purchase on and isn't all that compelling an argument. Well, finally then, Sean, I mean, is there any grounds to be concerned about the Trump administration's dealings? Because, yes, there's not this kind of Russian collusion thing going on. Potentially, it seems like it's a, a bit of a panic. But at the same time, I think the best you could probably say about the Trump administration is that it's extremely chaotic, extremely messy, doesn't seem to have any kind of professionalism, let alone any kind of vision. You know, 
Is there in this kind of war between the hard anti-Trumpers shouting Russia did it and the Trump camp kind of saying, oh, nothing to see here, that democracy is in threat? Is there a danger to democracy in this obsession with Russia? Yes, I think that's right. I think it is dangerous for democracy, ultimately, the way this investigation is unfolding. But I do think it's worthy uh, of investigation. I think if you look at all the different issues that have come up, the responses by Trump himself and some of his officials, it is questionable. And it's been even Republicans, as well as Democrats, have questioned this. I mean, just as I'm criticizing the Democrats and liberals who get overexcited and think that they've discovered this great conspiracy, I wouldn't necessarily side with, you know, Trump's lawyers and others who just say, well, there's nothing to see here. Just, you know, we should just stop all this nonsense. I mean, I think there's enough of some evidence of questionable activity that it needs, you know, and, and the Trump administration has really brought it upon themselves. It's their own fault for this happening. Now, that said, how should this best be investigated? I think in a democracy, what you want is the executive to be held accountable by Congress, by the elected representatives. That's the proper place. And people may not be fully aware of this, but actually there are investigations going on in the Senate and the House of Representatives into this. There's a lot of focus on the special counsel, but there are parallel investigations. And I, I think that's really the, which should be primary in this case. What's, what we're seeing, though, in the last few months is really become more evident that the special counsel investigation led by Robert Mueller is overstepping its bounds. I mean, part of the problem is, is that the, bound, the boundaries have not well defined to begin with. And that's what's been seen, you know, the history of appointing special investigators like Kenneth Starr in the 1990s to investigate Bill Clinton is often their parameters are not defined. And then it becomes a fishing expedition. They can basically investigate all, anything they really want to. And there seems to be evidence that this is, you know, this is happening now. So I think it's pretty transparent that uh, the special counsel and Department of Justice are, are acting like laws unto to themselves. And that's, that is a problem for democracy. On one hand, you can see that there are ways in which Trump and his administration are problematic. But again, his critics and the investigators into his activities are also as anti-democratic, if not more, in content, what they're doing. And that's the bigger problem is that, that that's less recognized. It sort of felt like it's okay as long as we can bring down Trump we don't care if we if a special counsel you know rides roughshod over our democratic institutions. More generally, we need to calm down and wait for these investigations to see what they reveal. That was Sean Collins on the ongoing investigations into Russia and the US. Now for our final guest. Groveling social media apologies are all the rage, it seems, and no one gets as many as Stop Funding Hate, the campaign group attacking companies who advertise in the Daily Mail, The Sun and The Daily Express. Stop Funding Hate hopes to choke these particular newspapers by cutting advertising funds. Why? Well, because these publications, according to the campaign group, apparently spread hatred. They are not the right kind of press. 
Most recently, the campaign group went after Paper Chase and Pizza Hut, both of whom, after social media wars, withdrew their adverts from the papers and apologised. So what is going on? Is this an attack on the press? Or is it merely an issue of consumer choice, as the anti-Daily Mailers seem to always argue? To discuss this and to get to the bottom of it, I spoke to spiked columnist Naomi First. So Naomi, can you start by telling us what Stop Funding Hate is? It's been in the news recently for a campaign it's running. Explain to us what it's been doing. Yeah, so Stop Funding Hate really appeared on the scene around this time last year. They are a campaign group who target advertisers in newspapers that they don't like. And so those newspapers are the Daily Mail, the Sun and the Daily Express. Their aim is to get those advertisers to stop advertising with those newspapers, and that's why they call it Stop Funding Hate. And this year, they've gone after, as I understand it, a Christmas wrapping and pizza, is it? Yeah, those have been their successes so far this year. So very festive. What they've done is stationary chain Paper Chase. They um, had a promotion with the Daily Mail to offer readers free rolls of Christmas wrapping paper. Very nice. But Stop Funding Hate went after them. They ended up with all these complaints um, on just on social media. And they ended up giving this very sort of groveling apology saying, you know, we're just terribly sorry we've done this, suggesting that they'd committed the worst crime possible for offering people free wrapping paper. A few weeks later, there was a Pizza Hut promotion um, with The Sun. And once again, Stop Funding Hate targeted them. And so Pizza Hut just apologised in the same kind of grovelling way. I mean, it does seem extremely cowardly what these companies are doing, because essentially Stop Funding Hate only really operates on social media, like you said. So it's kind of a Twitter storm that gets created and people tweet saying to Paper Chase or Pizza Hut or whatever the offending company is who's advertising in uh, one of the red tops why are you doing this these papers spread hate and of course these companies have come out with these really disgusting groveling apologies really only addressing sort of a few thousand people on twitter i mean is there no kind of backbone in the advertising industry anymore yeah i think it is very cowardly and quite surprising when you consider the readership numbers of the daily mail and the sun the daily mail is the most read newspaper in the country as it has been for a long time I think they've got around, I don't know, 30 million monthly readers, something like that. The sun is not too far behind. So it really does show a lack of backbone for these companies to give in to a few hundred, even if it was a few thousand um, hits on social media. I mean, that is nothing compared to the number of readers. And it's actually quite an offensive message to send out to readers of the of the tabloids. As if, you know, if I mean, if you're making this kind of judgment on the newspapers they read, what kind of judgment are you making on the people that read them? It doesn't seem like a very clever business decision. Now, obviously, yes, it does uh, look ostensibly like an attack on the press. But just to put their argument forward, what Stop Funding Hate argue and what they say when people like Spike criticise them is that this is all about consumer choice, that they have a right to voice their disquiet and their opinion that they have a right to lobby companies to try and get them to change their advertising choices they even say that it's free speech which of course it is but is this really about consumer choice is it really just about kind of you know they call ethical capitalism and being kind of good and moral in in what you buy and what you support or is this an attack on the press really i don't think this is about consumer choice at all 
I mean, I'm a consumer and if I don't like a newspaper, then I'm not going to buy it. I'll buy the newspaper that I like, which is, um, you know, as everyone does, we make that make that choice every day. And actually this year, I mean, unfortunately uh, for Stop Funding Hate, who always push this, um, you know, pro-consumer choice uh, argument, their founder, Richard Wilson, actually uh, ended up on Newsnight um, sort of revealing what their what their true goal is. Well, let's hear what we had to say. Here's a clip from him on Newsnight. I think the end point for us is a media that does the job that we want to do, that upholds the public interest. Okay, so what he's basically saying there is that there are uh, certain opinions that he wishes the press to hold. He wants a certain kind of press, I guess. Absolutely. I I really don't think this is about consumer choice. This this is about censoring the press as he quite clearly said on Newsnight, he's trying to shape the press into what he sees is is the right thing so i mean it's extremely obnoxious you know uh, richard wilson and his supporters have decided that they are the arbiters of what british people should or should not read i mean how outrageous why why on earth should they get to decide the point of a free press is that we have many different uh, news sources um, we have lots of different opinions we get to read the whole variety and then you know we we decide for ourselves what we agree with or what we don't it, you know it's up to the individual and let's just talk about quickly what they mean by hate because it's a funny word and it's it's very difficult to kind of talk about what they mean in terms of spreading hate because you know hate is emotion that can be used for lots of different reasons essentially what I can work out is that it's about the fact that the Daily Mail and the Sun and the Daily Express, to some degree, mostly post uh, articles about immigration that are anti-immigration, or they talk about uh, Muslims, or they talk about Islam in a negative way. It's all kind of uh, very much uh, not uh, hateful. It's kind of a certain political bent that lots of people disagree with myself included uh, but what really is it about these red tops that they kind of are so afraid of with newspapers like the daily mail like the sun um, especially when we're talking about immigration they are sort of more willing to have a debate to put forward a side of the argument that isn't considered acceptable in in polite society i suppose but the problem is with subjects like this um everyone has become so afraid to talk about them that we end up just not not saying anything. Now, I do not agree with everything that the tabloids say about plenty of subjects, but the point of a free press is to have access to a variety of opinions. I mean, that's, you know, personally, I like to read things I disagree with because it, it you know, it can strengthen your own arguments, it makes you think. Um, and I think actually part of this sort of fear of what tabloid saying is really a bit of a, a judgment on on the readers as, as i've said before there's this idea that the people that read the daily mail the people that read the sun or the daily express they just believe everything they read and they don't read articles in the same way that i don't know a guardian reader will read them you know without without a critical mind and it's just it's such an offensive thing to suggest i mean let's credit people with intelligence let's credit people with having critical minds and being able to read something and and think about it and think for themselves and read something else and come up with their own conclusions well finally then Naomi you touched on it there but tell us why I mean as a journalist this will be something very close to your heart but even as someone just interested in politics why is it crucial to defend a free press and why is it at the same time that stop funding hate can have their say very important to actually stand up to what they're doing. 
It's crucial to defend a free press if you believe in democracy. As the founder, Richard Wilson, was suggesting, I mean, they want the media to be one certain way. That is not a free press. That's someone having control of everything we read. And that is completely anti-democratic. And it's really worrying that campaigns like this pretend that they're doing good. And I just... I mean, I just wish they'd be honest about it. What they're interested in is censoring the press that they don't like. They're not interested in consumers having choice. I don't believe that for a second. Say it as it is. I mean, you know, everyone has the right to protest. Um, That's another freedom. And you have the right to do it. But why not just be honest about it? You've been listening to the Spiked podcast. To get your daily dose of spiked opinion, head to spiked-online.com. Subscribe to our podcast feed. If you liked this week's episodes, please share it on social media. Please let us know. And if you'd like to help Spike continue to thrive, please be sure to make a donation. Thanks for listening.